Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we come again to honor your name and to thank you for the salvation that you have freely given us in Christ and for appointing a time for us to come and be refreshed by your word that we may for a moment forget about the issues of this life, the temporary things that seem to cause us trouble. Help us, Lord, to hear the things that are needful, the things of our salvation. We thank you for gathering us this morning. We thank you for everyone who has gathered also in their different places to worship with us in the hearing of this gospel. May you teach them. Encourage those brethren who are by themselves in places where they cannot reach a faithful church. May you encourage them, continue also to teach them, even through our ministry. We thank you, we honor you for things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning, one and all who is joining us. <laughs> Back to our favorite story. I am trying to gain some strength. I'm tired. We went to the Air Force Museum yesterday with the kids. Ella and I used to live about a minute away from the Air Force base in Dayton. For many years, we never went. <laughs> now we have to drive an hour and a half to go to the same place where we actually used to live. So... But it was good. It was wonderful to see the history of flight. It's incredible. You need more than a day. I think you need about three days of nine to five. It's huge. It's mind-blowing. It's well done. So it's worth the time. And from that, I'm tired. And I'm going to need the Lord's help. I hope that's all. Only reason why I'm tired. But today we have our communion, and as our tradition, we go to the Old Testament to draw gospel understanding. My intention, if the Lord wills, is to do both books, First Samuel and Second Samuel, the way that He has given me ability to share these things. And I like the messages to be as long as they are because it gives a lot of details because when people are reading and they're listening, suddenly they have these questions. So you have to anticipate what people would also be asking about. Like, okay, you said this, but what about this other line? What is that saying? How does it relate to the story of Christ? So the Lord gives me as much as... He wants to give me in every message, but I highly recommend for people to follow the messages, both old and new. But we, this morning, come back to the gospel testimony as God preached it in the life and history of Saul. Saul was the king of Israel. And I, 
I'm going to do a strange thing and begin by not reading the text. <laughs> and the reason is that the amount of text that we have to cover is a lot. And so we shall read it verse by verse as we develop the message. Also, we have a lot of material to cover, and I did not want to make a 15-part series on Saul. I prefer to bring all the material in one place so that the necessary pieces and connections can be made, can be put together for a more complete picture of the story. And this is more so with typology, gospel preaching from typology or from pictures or shadows require a very tight hermeneutic, and hermeneutic simply means way of reading, and a very good understanding, a God-given understanding of his revelation of the story of his son as he has revealed it in the New Testament. So all those are necessary ingredients to make head and tell of what he is talking about. So this matter of preaching the gospel from the Old Testament or from any story is not guesswork. As the Lord said in Luke 24:27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See that he expounded to them, which means these were not obvious things. He had to expound. And the NET says of the same verse, he interpreted to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. And still in Luke 24, verse 25, just two verses before, it says, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. So he is doing both the opening and the exposition of the scriptures. He has to do it. And unless the Lord opens the mind, there's no understanding of Christ, not just from the Old Testament, but from all the scriptures. But if Christ expounds to them, then it will be understood. And I must follow the same pattern to interpret these stories. And when you're working the gospel testimony from types, you must define your people, define the situation so that they can be related to very clear New Testament revelation of Christ or the doctrine of the New Testament. Things tend to be easier if you can define who is the type of Christ in the story. Why? Because Christ is the center of all things. And in him all things consist, all things hold. So if you're able to do that, some of the puzzle pieces 
will begin to fall into place. You begin to know your way around all the other characters or interpreting the story. Another thing, you do not have to be able to interpret every detail in one sitting. It does not work like that. The meaning of things is never given in one sitting. If you do not get it, leave it alone. <laughs> but keep reading and praying because what happens is there may be something that is in the New Testament that you need to read first before you get to this. Or some other story in the Old Testament that you have not yet gotten to that will help you understand the story as has been told. Okay, But your definition of things should be supported by the details that have been given in the story. And you begin to work the testimony of the clearest character in that story first. You have to develop that character who is very clear. They are the ones who help you to place the other details in their correct boxes, in their correct places. Also, I'm speaking here mostly to preachers. You must give justification from the story why this character has been assigned as such and such, assigned as a type of Christ, as a type of the Holy Spirit, a type of the law, or whatever, and then organize your thinking around that definition of the person. Also, your explanation of the details should not go contrary to the New Testament revelation. They should say the same thing because it is still the same thing. <laughs> it is still talking about the one person, and that's Christ. And this is very important to maintain not only a sound hermeneutic, but to be consistent in the telling of the story of Christ because God has shown himself to be very consistent in the telling of his story. But I'll say this again. I'm very thankful that the Lord has given me such ability to see these things of Christ. It's not something that you go to school for. And there's not really a good book on typology that I've seen myself that I can recommend you to go and read. The few that I have seen over the years and were highly recommended to me some many years back, they really suck. <laughs> they, really, they are bad. They're very elementary to this subject. But we won't waste much time on that. Let us go to develop our story and see what the Lord will teach us from this story of Jonathan and Saul. I know that people like or love to sentimentalize Jonathan beyond measure. I mean, I have a cousin by the name of Jonathan. He's a nice, cool guy. <laughs> but they don't ever really go to the understanding of what God means or meant by him. 
And I won't blame the congregation for these things. I blame the preachers because they do not go to ask God for help, to just say, God, teach me what I am supposed to know about Christ. They don't. And so you see a lot of corruption with the way Esther, Hannah, and other characters of the Bible are presented, and it drives me crazy. And of course, Miss Potiphar, yeah. <laughs> People always see themselves as Joseph. That has always bothered me. Because they are not. <laughs> Their testimony is with Miss Potiphar. But we thank God that we have not learned about these characters that way. And God is continuing to teach us the more needful things about these characters. And so this morning we are going to be crisscrossing between 1 Samuel 13 and 14. And we potentially have three headings, maybe four, because of the details that are in the text. But as I said, I did not want to parcel them out as we have a lot of chapters to cover in First Samuel and Second Samuel. So with that introduction, here are the titles of our message. Number one, no weapons for the army. <laughs> no weapons for the army. Number two, Jonathan defeats the Philistines. Jonathan defeats the Philistines. And number three, Saul's rash vow. Saul made a rash vow. Or just Saul's vow. And then the summary of that is Saul, Jonathan, and the gospel. I think that's probably what I'm going to put uh, on the on the website when I post the message. So, Jonathan and the Gospel, and we'll begin at verse 1 of 1 Samuel 14. Now, it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. So was the king of Israel, and God had given him, because the people had asked to have a king who would go before them like the kings of the other nations. And God was not amused by this request. He took it as a rejection of his authority. And he gave them a king according to their desires, according to their prayer. But God said this king was going to ruin their lives, have them in servitude to him, and essentially make their lives miserable in other words, he was not, he was going to be no good. But if we end our thinking there, then we would have miserably failed to understand the whole matter. 
God is he who was behind the whole situation because he was unfolding the testimony of Christ Jesus. And this really offends people because they want to blame Israel for their sin. As if Israel could do better, as if anyone could do better. If you could do better, you'd have done better. But the fact that you did what you did means you cannot do better. People are not thinking through or using the knowledge of the mystery that has been not made known in Christ Jesus to interpret the stories. That's a problem. The mystery was hidden. And this is how God hid it by telling stories like this. So the people must sin and they must reject God that God may bring or unfold more gospel testimony of law and gospel. It is not their script. It was God's writing. God is using them to dramatize his own script of Christ. God is driving history to its appointed end, which is the revelation of Christ. So, then was revealed and given by God to the people as the tallest and the most handsome guy in all of Israel. Yes, it was God who not only chose Saul, but made him this way. <laughs> God made sure that Saul would be, at this time, the most handsome man in Israel. And for this purpose, to use him. And this speaking to what testimony Saul was to carry. The picture of his beauty and towering figure made him very attractive to the people. And yet, in the same beauty or handsomeness was hidden severe brutality and ultimate rejection of Saul himself. How could God reject such a handsome man? <laughs> at the end of it. And that is the testimony of the law, that it is holy, it is good and righteous, and people naturally are attracted to it, like magnet is attracted to steel, but it is the very same that is the letter that kills. The very law, which is holy, good and righteous, is the letter that kills. It is the ministry of death and condemnation. When people caught the law, they never want to caught everything that God has said around the law. They say, oh, it's holy, it's righteous and good, and that's true, and amen to that. But they don't want to go to the side, the conclusion of it. For that reason, it is the letter that kills. <laughs> so Saul was the picture of the law, but he carried other testimonies too, Remember, these stories were not given for us to do a character assassination of the king or to determine his salvation. If you go and listen to 
I'm going to give you 80% of the messages that talk about Saul. The preacher is going to talk about his condemnation. But you're not going to hear anything about Christ from it. God is not a gossiper. He wrote this story with a higher spiritual testimony and reality. And he will continue to unfold to us the other pictures surrounding or built into his character in the Old Testament pictures. A person did not necessarily always carry one testimony. They could be more than one type. Be type of God the Father, could be type of Christ, type of the Holy Spirit, or even a type of the Lord, depending on the details that God has adjoined to their character in that particular story. So as soon as Saul had been made king, coronated by Samuel as the king of Israel, war broke out with the Philistines. And Saul and his son Jonathan were leading the charge. And that takes us from 1 Samuel 12 to I think Texas from 1 Samuel 12 to 13, I believe. War is broken out. And the people of Israel were surrounded by the Philistines and they went into hiding. The people had been scattered away from Saul and Saul was determined to make a sacrifice to the Lord that he possibly may change the course of the war. But he failed to follow Samuel's order. Saul was not from the priestly family. He was not supposed to make a sacrifice to God. And Samuel had clearly given him instruction, I believe in 1 Samuel 10, that he was to wait for him in Gilgal. And then after seven days, Samuel would come and make the sacrifice. But Saul did not follow the order. And of course, God was behind his disobedience. Because Saul, even though he was appointed by God, was not approved of God. Appointed by God and yet not approved by God. He was not approved by God to be the way of deliverance of his people from the Philistines, just as the law came from God but it was not appointed as the means of salvation. If salvation, if righteousness came by the law, then Christ died in vain. That's what Paul says in the book of Galatians, chapter 2. So God must build a reason to reject him. This is not about Saul. It's about Christ. First Samuel 13, verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people. 
because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So what the Lord had commanded Saul was for him to wait for Samuel to come and make the sacrifice. So Saul was set up by God to fail. And God is within his sovereign rights to do that. Because Saul's kingdom was never supposed to continue because the covenant and the ministry of the law of which Saul represented was never supposed to continue. The Lord had his men, a man after his own heart, which means this man had always been God's man to take over from Saul, and that was David. But as we have taught before, and as we shall also see, David was a foremost type of Christ. So much that even Jesus himself is called David, and also the son of David. So Saul's reign must end because David is already prepared by God for the throne. The law must come to an end because the son of David has appeared to take the throne and that is the connection. And it's very curious that the man who is after God's own heart is going to commit adultery and God knows it, but he says, that's my man which means our interpretation of the actions of David with Bathsheba have to be gospel, otherwise we'll make a mess of it. Okay? First Samuel 13, verse 2. Um, and Saul so was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah, under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron, the people who were with him were about 600 men. Was that 13 or 1 Samuel 14? Huh? It's 13. It's 14. Okay. Because I, I, I realized that I may have made a mistake on that. So it's 1 Samuel 13, 14. That's where we are. Verse 2. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabah's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod or ephod. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. So Saul had his men, but apparently Jonathan had made a secret escape. He left their congregation, and that for a gospel testimony, as we shall see. Verse 4, between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side, and the name of one was Boses, and the name of the other Sena, the front of one faced northward opposite Michmash and the other southward opposite Gibeah. So to reach the outpost of the Philistines, Jonathan had to go through two cliffs on which there was sharp rocks on either side. 
a sharp rock on the one side and one on the other. And thus he had to pass through the valley that was divided this way for him to get to the Philistines. And that for another gospel testimony, as we shall see. Verse 6, Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that, or it may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from serving by many or by few. So Jonathan was in the company of a certain young man who was his armor bearer. And this young man's name was not given us. And I suppose, for reasons that I shall give later, that he was a picture of the Holy Spirit. But let us look at the words of Jonathan. He said, let us go to the garrison of the Philistines and do what? To cause trouble, to fight them. These who are the uncircumcised, to say these who are not God's people. But we shall not go in our strength, but in the hope that the Lord will work for us a victory, even in the smallness of our number. But why the confidence? For nothing restrains the Lord from serving by many or by a few. Nothing, nothing stops him. <laughs> in other words, the defeat of God's enemies is not a numbers game. The salvation of his people does not need that many helpers. It is not a synergistic salvation. God is able by himself to subdue all his enemies. And by this we are being given some nuggets about the identity of Jonathan and that of the young man who was his armor bearer. And to develop Jonathan, we have to define his name. His name, Jonathan, means Yahweh has given. Yahweh has given. Yahweh has given. Uh, what? What has he given? Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And what was the son, the greater Jonathan given to do? What was the son given to do? Yahweh is, has given. In First John 5, Beginning at verse 10, this is what John says. He who believes in the Son of God has witness, has the witness in himself. He who does not believe, God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, 
and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. God has given. And this is what he has given. He has given his son. Not only to die in our place, but to give eternal life. The eternal life is in the given son. The eternal life that has been given is in the given son. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. So the son given freely and eternal life also freely given in him. Because salvation is a free gift from God given in the given son. <laughs> Thus, all the gymnastics to try and condition this matter of salvation on the doing of a sinner of any kind is false. And to be honest, it's also evil teaching. Because God has given and he has given unconditionally. And what he has given unconditionally cannot be taken away from you. John says, the fact that you believe is testimony that God has given you eternal life in the Son. He doesn't say, the fact that you believe and are getting better and better. <laughs> he doesn't attach that to any of your doing, to the simplicity of the cross. Simplicity of Christ's faith. That's the hallmark of the evidence of our salvation. And God determined to give it and to deliver by the hand of a few to give that eternal life by the hand of a few, not by many, as Jonathan said. And that means by the work of Jonathan alone in the company of his armor bearer. Let's see. And to see this wonderful truth, let us backtrack to First Samuel 13. In another battle with the Philistines. In 1 Samuel 13, verse 16, this is what was recorded for us. So, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned onto the road to Ophrah, to the land of Shual, another company turned to the road to Beth Horon, and another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim towards the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. 
There was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. The Philistines had somehow kept Israel from the knowledge of working metals, metallurgical technology, and the skills of the day to form tools and weapons of war from metal. And they did not allow for any patent infringement either by the Israelites. So they prevented the flow of these beaten metalwork skills. It's called beaten metalwork when you're forming tools out of metal. I studied metalwork in high school. <laughs> Lest they would learn to enrich their own uranium <laughs> and become like the rocket boys of North Korea. That's the conversation. This is the conversation. Israel and the Philistines are arch enemies. And the Philistines are making sure that the technology to sharpen weapons and stuff does not get to the Israelites. And that means the Israelites were militarily at a serious disadvantage to the Philistines and there was no, there was not a single blacksmith in all of Israel. So what did Israel do? Verse 20, First Samuel 13, but all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for a sharpening was a pim for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to set the points of the gods. So all that adjustment, the filings, you had to pay. So Israel heavily relied on their enemies to sharpen their tools and weapons for them. You can see <laughs> the conflict of interest in that. And this was the result of such an arrangement. It was very purposeful on the side of the Philistines. Verse 22. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. Essentially to say Israel had been demilitarized by the Philistines. But the text is, they were found with Saul and Jonathan and his son. They were found with, Jonah, with Saul and Jonathan and his son. So in all of Israel, only Saul, the king, and Jonathan, his son, had weapons of war. But why? <laughs> it's so good. So that Jonathan would later come and say, First Samuel 14, verse 6. First Samuel 14, verse 6. Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. It doesn't matter that the Philistines have demilitarized our people. The Lord is still our fighter. And there are only two who have weapons, in other words, who have ability to deliver. It's Saul and Jonathan. And that means God and his son are they alone 
who have the tools of war. These people who should be saved have nothing to use. Everyone has been dispossessed of that ability to fight or cause their own salvation by the Philistines. In other words, we have to define the Philistines. The Philistines represent sin. We have taken our weapons to be sharpened to the Philistines or by the Philistines. And the Philistines would not sharpen them as to give us victory. Someone else must fight for us. It's wonderful stuff. God is saying, your ability to fight for your own salvation was taken away by sin. The Philistines took it. If you should be delivered, it has to be the work of the Father and the Son alone. They alone have the power. They alone have the tools to deliver you from the hands of the Philistines. First Samuel 14, verse 7. So his Amabera said to him, Do all that is in your heart. God then, here I am, according to your heart. Jonathan must go to war against the Philistines. And Jonathan is not afraid. That is the only one who has the tools. And he gets encouragement from his armor bearer. And that means the young man represents the testament of the Holy Spirit, who was with Christ Jesus as he came to fight against the Philistines. That is our sin. That is the principalities, the powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age the spiritual horse of wickedness in the heavenly places. Christ Jesus came in the power of the Spirit. That's why this man, this young man, is in the company of Jonathan. He's not the one doing the fighting. He's there to give encouragement. Let's go to Ephesians 6, 10. Ephesians 6, 10. Lord, have mercy where we are and where the time is. <laughs> And we haven't even studied the nuggets. <laughs> Ephesians 6.10 Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Verse 11 Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Verse 13 Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The young man with Jonathan represents the armor of the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus routed his enemies by and in the power of the Holy Spirit who carried him and this is why Jonathan and this young man must pass through this valley with two sharp-edged rocks on either side. Two sharp-edged rocks. I think they exegete Christ Jesus, the two sharp-edged sword, the word of God who also was the rock. He is the one. Okay? Verse 8. Who substantiate that. Verse 8 of 1 Samuel 14. Then Jonathan said, Very well, let us cross over to these men and we 
we'll show ourselves to them. If they say thus to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. So Jonathan must cross over to where these Philistines were. He does not want them to cross over to him. He wants to cross over to where they are. Why? Because Christ Jesus must cross over to come where sin was as to fight and defeat it. And how did Christ cross over? Through the incarnation. He has to leave the Father, and this is why Jonathan disappeared. And when he disappeared, he just was not disappearing to disappear. He was disappearing to go fight the Philistines. Hear this. This is what Jonathan says, said in verse 10, still in First Samuel 14. But if they say thus, that is the Philistines, come up to us, then we will go. For the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and this will be a sign to us. And this is the same thing that Goliath did against Israel and David. First Samuel 17 verse 8, Goliath made the same statement. He said this, First Samuel 17 verse 8, Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel, and say to them, why, no, I think that should be 2 Samuel 17, not 1 Samuel. That should be 2 Samuel 17. And then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and say to them, why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. Let the man who can fight, the man that will stand for you, come down to me. Come down from where? Because he cannot be found among the children of men. The man who is able to fight Goliath cannot be found from among the children of men. He must come down from heaven by the incarnation. And David is he who comes down. But when he comes down, it means one thing. His enemies have already been delivered into his hands by God. His victory is certain. When Jesus came, he said, I have come to give my life as a ransom for the many. I have come to win this thing. Okay? So when he comes down, it means the victory is certain. The enemies have been given over into his hands. So both of them, going back to 1 Samuel 14, so both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines and when Christ came and showed himself to all of God's enemies, what was their reaction? And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have 
hidden. That was their interpretation on seeing Jonathan and his armor bearer. Jonathan is coming out. The Hebrews are coming out from their hiding. Jonathan is coming out representing all the Hebrews against the Philistines. And he is coming out as if he had been hiding. That's what they say. They're coming out of the walls where they have hidden. And this is Christ coming out in his power as God, as if he had been hidden in the flesh. He's coming. He left the father. Jonathan left the father, but to go to war. But when he goes there, he comes out as if he had been hidden. Christ comes to war as the son of God, but as if he had been hidden in the incarnation, God in the flesh. First off, then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you something. <laughs> they think they have some trick or two up their sleeve with which to defeat Jonathan, very confident of themselves. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And verse 13, and Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him. And the immediate thing that happened is their enemies fell before Jonathan. Pay attention to that. Pay attention to the movement. Why does Jonathan climb up on his hands and knees and in that movement gives victory? By that seemingly simple maneuver. Yeah? Because that is a picture of Christ who is climbing up the cross with his hands and feet to be crucified, and in that move, all his enemies fell before him. God has a million ways to describe the work of Christ on the cross. That simple move is the same simple move that Jonah proposed to the mariners, if you still remember. They asked him, what shall we do to you that this storm may come for us? And Jonah said, simple solution, just lift me up. Lift me up and throw me overboard. They're like, oh, there's no way. That's too simple. We cannot do that. That's too simple. A gospel. You could not stop this much of a tempest by just simply lifting you up into the... It's like, no, this is the only way. You lift me up. That's the simplicity of salvation. That movement. Jonathan just makes a cross movement. And the, fellows, the, the, the enemies fell before him. <laughs> Verse 14 and 15. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about half an acre of land. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earth, and the earth quaked 
So it was a very great trembling in the course or in the aftermath of that victory. A great slaughter, a great trembling in the field and among the people. The garrison and the raiders were shaking and the earth quagged. How is that for just some storytelling? The earth quaking. Jonathan did not throw a nuclear bomb. Because that would be what you expect. This big 2,000 whatever say, uh, size or weight bombs that would cause the earth to shake. What event of deliverance caused the earth to shake? This was looking to the victory of the Lord Jesus when he was lifted up on the cross and when he yielded his spirit to death. Matthew 27. Verse 50 to 52. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. To a person who did not know God's way of fighting, they thought that was defeat. But this was the fight. This was the fight. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So work is being done. The veil of the temple is being torn to say access to God has been opened. And the earth quagged and the rocks were split. The earth quagged in the light of Christ's victory against the Philistines. And the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. That's victory. It's victory over what? Over sin and death. When the dead are being raised to life, that's salvation. <laughs> that's what he was accomplishing. He's overcoming the Philistines. And now, we'll see more definition to the person and work of Jonathan to substantiate what I've just sh shared so far. First Samuel 14, verse 16 and 17. Now the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked and there was the multitude and there was the multitude melting away and they went here and there in confusion, obviously. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, now call the roll and see who has gone from us. And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Jonathan and his men were nowhere to be found. And that means they were in trouble. How could he be in trouble? The one who has just delivered Israel from the enemies. And why is Saul having a roll call? This is speaking to the Lord Jesus, leaving the Father and coming to earth 
for our salvation. But it is, or it was presented in such a way that you could not even see unless Jonathan is properly developed and identified as a picture of Christ based on his name and on his work and other statements that shall come in the conversation. God is not saying he did a roll call in heaven to discover that Jesus was not there. <laughs> this is just a picture. He is speaking to the matter of Christ's mission in the manner of man to say this is what happened. It is as if Jesus had secretly disappeared. Why? Because those in heaven did not know the mystery of Christ. Paul teaches that. Those in heaven, they're not seeing Jesus. Where is he? Where did he go? Let's do a roll call. Because it was hidden to them. But the mystery is now made known. It has been not made known. And I think it was Peter who even said, even the angels, they desired to look into these things that we now know that have been revealed, but they were clueless about what things were being said. Even the prophets of old did not know. Okay? So that's the whole idea around, let's do a roll call. Where is Jonathan? <laughs> Verse 18. And so I said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for at that time the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Now it happened while Saul talked to the priests that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priests, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they went to the battle. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor, and there was very great confusion. So Saul now joins in the battle. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So there's this confusion that God has caused amongst the camp of the enemies and there was even an uprising, an insurrection by the Hebrews who were living among the Philistines. They turned against the Philistines. They turned against their oppressors. Why? Because when we have been liberated by Jonathan, we seem to sound like we have turned against the law. Why? Because the power of sin is in the law. And it is a natural reaction that we always sound when we tell the truth on Christ as if we are saying we hate the law, but we don't hate the law. We don't. But the law is our enemy in that it condemns us because of our sin. Yeah. So we have these Hebrews that we're living among the Philistines, but as soon as they head off salvation, they're like, okay, we're against you now. <laughs> we are out of this place. We are running you out of town. Verse 22 and 23, First Samuel. 
14, likewise all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth Aven. So the Lord saved Israel that day, thanks to Jonathan and his armor bearer. Let's keep moving. I want to show you more testimony that Jonathan was indeed a type of Christ. And that this story was speaking of the person and work of the Lord Jesus. First Samuel 14, 24. And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I've taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tested food. So Saul had placed the people of Israel under an oath to fast, to not have any food until evening. And with that, he also attached a curse. And that means death. And this was a decree from the king. And that decree defines for us who Saul is or was in this story. We saw from the beginning that Saul was a type of the law by reason of his handsomeness and ruthlessness. But he also was the king. And if you have a king, you have a picture of God the Father. He, had, he was a king who had a son who was a true warrior. And this son also was his firstborn. Jonathan was the firstborn son of Saul. And his name happened to be Jonathan. It happened to mean Yahweh has given. And it is by whom... And it's by him that God has delivered his people from the hands of the enemies. So Jonathan was a type of Christ by reason of name and by reason of the work. And that makes Saul a picture of God the Father because it is God who issued the decree of the law and attached a curse to it. It's God who did. And said, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things that are written in the book of the law, right? To do them. So Saul is the intersection of the type of the law and God and his decree that condemns the God together. Verse 25. Now all the people of the land came to a forest and there was honey on the ground, and when the people had come into the woods, there was, there was the honey dripping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the earth. The people come to the forest, and they were so unfortunate in course to find this honey that was just dripping. Like, this was just dripping. You didn't even need to put any effort to get it. It was just dripping. Okay? 
saying, come and have some, please, and be condemned. It's just dripping. The honey is so good. It's so tempting. The people are so hungry. They haven't eaten anything. And the honey is just there dripping. <laughs> come and eat me, please. And that also is saying what? It's the same picture and experience of the Garden of Eden. God is tying the movement of the curse from the Garden of Eden to this story. Let's go there and make the connection. Genesis 3. Genesis 3. 1 to 7. Moses says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Yes, God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. If and when you eat it, you shall die. In other words, there's a curse that has been attached to eating of the tree or from the tree. As there was a curse attached to source earth, Saul's vow was a reminder, a recapitulation of the Garden of Eden. Saul is most definitely the picture of God here. Let's continue verse 4 of Genesis 3. Then the serpent said to the woman, You surely not die. God is making it up. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and your IQ is going to be so good. You're going to be so smart. <laughs> and you'll be like God. See how, <laughs> that's incredible. From where you are, if you're going to be so smart. You're going to be like God. And also, knowing good and evil. <laughs> so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. So Eve saw that the tree was good, was appetizing, and she ate and gave some to poor Adam and both ate and the cast fell on them. See the movement of things. The tree is good. They eat and the curse falls. Jonathan sees the honey dripping. It looks good. It is appetizing. He takes a lick and the curse falls. Hear this. Verse 27. Let's go to First Samuel. 14. But Jonathan had not had his father charge the people with the oath. Therefore he stretched out the end of the rod that was in his hand 
and dipped it in a honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his countenance brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly chided the people with an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats food this day. The people knew about this. They only told him after the fact. Your father said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath. God strictly charged the people with an oath. If you disobey me, the curse is going to fall. And with Adam, verse 7, Genesis 3, and the eyes of both of them were opened. They were brightened. And this is what the brightening did to them. And they knew Not that they were good. They did not know, as the devil had promised, that they would have the knowledge of good and evil. They knew that they were naked. They knew that they were condemned. And so they went to work and opened their first free will Baptist church, right? (laughs) They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Right. So I wanted to say this. The eyes of Adam and Eve, on the falling of the curse, their eyes opened. Jonathan's eyes opened. The curse has fallen on both of them, on, or on all of them. Let's keep going. Verse 29. But Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance has brightened. There's some shining going on here because I tested a a little bit, a little of this honey. My father has troubled the land by reason of his oath. God has troubled the land. God has troubled not just Adam and Eve, but all of humanity by this seemingly one commandment by reason of his commandment to not eat from the tree. It could not be that bad. The sin of Adam did not just trouble him and his wife. Romans 5 says sin entered into the world through the transgression of the one man. So they all died because all sinned in Adam. And Jonathan says this Simple oath to not eat until the evening has brought such a curse upon the whole land, not just upon me, but the whole land. It has been imputed to the whole land. It happened to me one time when we were still in Dayton. Ella and I were fasting. On a Friday, I took the girls to Maya to do groceries after work. They were still young, the big girls now, but still young. And I got them some Doritos. (laughs) And they were eating in the cart. (laughs) My fast was not supposed to be broken until after five. And this was around three in the afternoon. (laughs) And I took a bite. And the curse fell. <laughs> I felt condemned, like for real. I've told this story many times before. 
I felt like I'd been condemned because of that simple oath. So I can relate to what Jonathan is talking about. And Jonathan says, verse 30, how much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found for now would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines. Jonathan says, Father, you should just have left the people to eat the spoils of what Christ has done. The spoils of war. What he has accomplished. Do not put these odds, these commandments for people not to do something because they bring death to them. Jonathan is a sovereign grace preacher. He's not a law preacher. He says, do not give people things to do or not to do because it will bring a cash upon them. Jonathan tested just a little honey, just a little honey. That's what he said. I just tested a little honey. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You do not need to devour the whole honeycomb or the whole beehive, <laughs> but just test a little, just a little bit, who bring condemnation. The honey here must represent the law in this context. Yes, there is the honey that came from the carcass of the lion, but that was spoken of in a different context. The honey from the lion's carcass, that was sweet was salvation that came because of the death of the lion. But this one is in reference to condemnation because a curse is attached to this honey. Yes, the law is good. The honey is good. It is attractive. But if you take a little bit of it, you break just one commandment, Seemingly insignificant commandment, you are condemned. And people do not get this, and this is what God is saying. They think a little sinning means it is well between them and God. Oh, I am just sinning a little these days. <laughs> that is not good. It's deception. Jonathan must eat the honey. And his countenance should shine because the curse of sin was to come on Christ. And his countenance was also to shine as the one who was supposed to deliver his people from the condemnation of their sin. And hence, the transfiguration. That's the shining of the countenance of Christ. As the one who has come to eat what we have eaten. Okay? And yet... Without sin. Verse 31. Now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon. So the people were very faint. And the people arrived on the spoil and took sheep, oxen, and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. 
God had told Israel not to eat or drink the blood of animals. And these people are going crazy. <laughs> They're eating everything. But the people were hungry. And they were faint from what had just happened to Jonathan. And they're like, who cares? <laughs> let's just go for it. Even for the forbidden blood, let's just drink it. So he said, You have dealt treacherously, raw and like stone to me this day. Then Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. This was the first order that he built to the Lord. Now Saul said, verse 36, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. Then the priests said, Let us draw near to God here. So the priests said, Let us not go to war without asking God about the matter. Let's seek the Lord to help us. Yeah, verse 37. So, so as counsel of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. So is asking God whether he should be the one to go and deliver Israel from the Philistines. Shall I go? And the law is asking God. This is where people, especially in the West, have a hard time thinking like this, but their mind is not screwed to think like this. Okay? I see it. They don't get it. That's why they struggle with typology. But they use to 2 plus 2 is equal to 4. They don't get the nuance in the communication. Saul says to God, shall I be the one to cause the salvation of your people? And God does not answer him. God is saying, no, you're not the one. And in the matter of salvation, there are only two possibilities. It's either the law or it's Christ. And God is saying to the testimony of the law as it is in Saul, no, you are not the one to deliver my people. So I'm going to give you, for now, the back hand. I'm not going to talk to you. Okay? <laughs> Verse 38. And Saul said, come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was today. So Saul is curious. He needs to find out why he can't go. Why God is not speaking to him about this matter. So, so interpreted or attributed the non-response to some sin that someone in the camp had done. Okay? Verse 39. 
For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. <laughs> right there. God is telling us where this is going. It's not going to be deliverance by Saul. It's going to be by his son. Okay? This is, very, this is a very curious statement by Saul. He takes this matter several notches higher and said, even if this sin that has caused God to not talk to me was committed by my own son, Jonathan, he must die. And so had two other sons too. But he said, no, no, no. If it's this Jonathan, he too must die. And that was a prophetic statement. The firstborn of Pharaoh must die for the people to be set free. The son born from the sin of David and Bathsheba must die, said Nathan the prophet, and that was Christ Jesus. And whoever eats from this tree shall die. It seems like God is obsessed with it. Whoever eats from this tree shall die. Adam died, but he did not die. <laughs> Someone else had to die because Adam was a picture of him who was to come. And now Jonathan has been caught in the web of these affairs of Christ Jesus where the sentence is, you must die. <laughs> you must die. So it's a picture of God the Father whose son has gotten in trouble by reason of his own decree. Christ has gotten in trouble by reason of God's own decree. Yeah? But not a man among all the people answered him. That's First Samuel 14, 39 to 40. Then he said to all Israel, You be on one side and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other side. So Saul divides himself and Jonathan from the rest of the people for lots to be cast and let God reveal the matter. Let God point who is the culprit who is going to die. And the people say to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, give a perfect lot as if God was ever going to give a false lot. In other words, <laughs> tell us the truth. Show us the culprit. Point to us on whom the curse of the decree has fallen. You show us. Has it fallen on the people of Israel or has it fallen on the son of Saul? See this also. That the earth, though made by Saul, was made binding by God. On Israel, Saul did not ask God for it to be binding, which means it's God who made it binding. So which means it's God who made Saul to make the earth. And that tells you, again, as I say, that Saul is a picture of God the Father. And as I've been saying, so going back to verse 41, sorry. Going back to verse 41. So Saul and Jonathan were taken. So the lot has been cast. Jonathan and Saul on one side and Israel on one side. So it isolates 
Saul and his son, and another lot was cast. Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. The lot was cast, and Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. Escaped from what? They escaped from the condemnation that was in the decree. Because once you have identified the culprit, the people should be set free. I hope you see it. If so, and his son are taken by God's lot, then it follows that the people with them escape from the condemnation of that decree. The people with Jonathan, the people with Saul, the people with the son, they escape from that decree that condemns. And that means the matter here is between the father and the son. The matter of salvation was always between the father and the son. The people were told, no, no, you have nothing to do with this. It's between the son and the father. It's between Christ and the father. <laughs> Why? Because they, the two of them alone had weapons of war. Remember that? They are the only two who have ability to fight. 42 of First Samuel 14, and Saul said, cast, cast lots between my son, Jonathan, and me. I mean, <laughs> Saul is very confident that this thing is going to turn for his good. So Jonathan was taken. Jonathan was taken. The curse of the earth is on Jonathan. In this one whom God has given, according to his name. And that means it was not the father who was to die for our salvation. But the son who should be given over to death. The son is the one who's going to be found guilty. Jonathan is the son who must be taken in the lot. This is election. And Jesus came and said in John 6.27, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Because God the Father has set his seal on him. God has put his seal. God has elected or elected the son to be the one on whom the curse should fall. Christ became sin. He became sin for us, right? He became the curse so that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. For cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. This is where this is all going. Verse 43, then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only, <laughs> I only tested a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand, so now I must die. I only, I only, that I only thing, I'm telling you, 
It's going to condemn a lot of people. I only. But Jonathan did not lie. Even though he knew that he was facing death, he told the truth. Just as Jesus told the truth when the soldiers came for him and they, Jesus asked them, who are you seeking? And they said, we are seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. But if you seek me, let these go their way. So if you have found Jonathan, let all of Israel escape the condemnation. Let all of God's people escape the condemnation. And that's Christ Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's Hebrews 12, verse 2. But Jonathan says, so now I must die. The son was given to die. He came to ransom the many by his death. And Saul said in verse 44, so answered God, do so and more also for you shall surely die, Jonathan. Saul condemns his son to death and said, you, Jonathan, shall surely die. God condemns Adam. Remember, Adam is also called the son of God. He says, you, the son of God, shall surely die when you eat from this tree. You, Christ Jesus, the son of God, shall surely die. You, son of David, shall surely die because you have entered and taken the place of your sinful people. So the Christ must be condemned to death. But there's also other testimony in the aftermath of that death. Verse 45. So Jonathan has died here. Just as Adam died but did not die. Jonathan has already died in this conversation. He has already condemned. But the people say to Saul, shall Jonathan die? Who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan and he did not die. What is happening here? The twist and the ordering of the conversation really needs God's grace to follow. You who think that what the people said should have been Jonathan speaking on behalf of them. But no, it was the very opposite. The people were now defending Jonathan before his own father and say, oh no, Jonathan is not going to die because he died already. He accomplished our salvation. Hear this. <laughs> the people have an ironclad reason for why Jonathan cannot die. The reason is one, he says, because he has already 
saved his people. He has already delivered his people. He has accomplished a great deliverance, a great salvation for Israel. So there's no reason to sacrifice him again. <laughs> so this is conversation that is happening after salvation has already happened. This is testimony of God's people after the cross. This is gospel preaching after the cross. There is pre-cross testimony and post-cross testimony. In other words, the Christ cannot be offered to death again and again because he completed that work. He delivered the people. And the writer of Hebrews catches that by saying this in Hebrews 10. To the matter of those who wanted to go back to the law, in other words, to crucify Christ again. Hebrews 10, 14 to 18 says this. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I'll write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Where there is a cancellation of these, there's no reason for Christ to die again. Where salvation has been accomplished, there's no reason for Christ to be condemned again. Jonathan has delivered Israel from the hands of the Philistines and there's no need for him to die. Again, in their way of speaking, the Lord Jesus has perfected forever the sanctified and we cannot sacrifice him over and over and over as Roman Catholicism does. <laughs> and Hebrews 1, verse 3 to 4, and beginning at the middle of that verse, and speaking of Christ and his superiority as the Son, who holds all things by the word of his power, who being the brightness of God. When he had, by himself, paged our sins, which means had made an end to the purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the Christ who is seated means he's done having become so much better than the angels. Christ was not an angel. And here, speaking of having become so much better than the angels, is speaking to the humanity side of Christ that has also been lifted 
in having been joined to the Logos. The humanity of Christ has now been lifted together with him to the right side of God. Okay? They become so much better than angels. Because remember, in Psalm, uh, is it Psalm 2? He made him a little lower than the angels. That's the reference. And that's speaking to the incarnation of Christ. Made lower, but after the resurrection, he's now been raised together than the angels. So he's going back to his rightful place. Okay? So having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So Christ has a name that's more excellent than the angels. And if there's a name that is above the angels, that's the name of God. So that also tells you that the Son is God. So this Christ, this Son of God, this Jonathan, does not suffer from the weakness of the law and its priesthood, who continued to sacrifice over and over because their work never made anything perfect. Okay? This Jonathan, once he delivered from the Philistines, God is kind of working the testimony backwards. He delivers first, and then he gives us the theology of how that happened. The people have already been delivered. So now let's sit down. Let's throw some lots here to see what actually happened. Let me give you an interpretation of what happened. Remember where we began with this. You guys, we went to war and you had nothing to use to fight. Here's zero. Okay? The Philistines had dispossessed you of your ability to fight. Sin had taken your ability to fight. You could not be righteous. So if you should be saved, it has to be by the work of Jonathan. And so the curse must fall, fall on Jonathan. But when Jonathan is finished delivering, he's not dying again. He is not dying again. This God's gospel preached in types and shadows. And I have some more testimony of Jonathan that's coming up. I already read way ahead. Because how you define things here affects how you're going to see things ahead. So I had to make sure that the testimony was consistent. So sometime we're going to get to Jonathan and David. I'm going to connect it to you. You're going to love it. It's brilliant. I mean, it's wonderful because God has opened it. Okay. So let his name be praised. Amen. <laughs> Jonathan cannot die again because he has finished our salvation. And that's Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these many wonderful things that were hidden from the wise and the prudent but if been revealed to the babes and the suckling, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who shows us and ministers to us these wonderful nuggets of Christ. We pray that your people will come and hear these messages and give them understanding, Lord, I pray. Thank you for all that you have done. Keep us safe in our going in and out. We thank you for blessing. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Yeah. All right. All right, good people. <laughs> we'll see you later.